Let me ask you to open up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. As we were singing a while ago, I was thinking about, um, well, last Sunday night we mentioned that the first Bible printed in the United States was printed in the Algonquin language. Now, the United States wasn't even the United States when it was printed. This was in the 1600s that we had the first book published in North America, and it was a Bible printed in the Algonquin language. That was the first Bible. Um, But I learned this week what the first book was that was printed in North America, and the first book that was printed in North America was the Bay Psalter. It was a book of psalms for Christians to sing together. And uh, so the, the worship of God and the singing of psalms is something that's always been precious to, to God's people. And uh, so thankful that it's precious to us as well. Well, as we continue our way verse by verse through this book of the Bible, I just need to let you know up front that we have come to one of the most flesh-offending, pride-killing, God-exalting passages in all of the Bible. And so let's read it together and hear what our Lord has to say to us. Beginning in Romans 9 and verse 19. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, how we approach something can make a big difference in the impact it has. And this passage is a bonfire. And if you run right into a blazing bonfire and you exercise no caution, you will find yourself burnt up. This is the kind of passage that we must approach carefully, with a sense of reverence and with a sense of awe. And when we do that, it can have a warm and encouraging effect on our lives. Uh, I think the key word about how we should approach all of Scripture, and especially a passage like this one, is humility. Humility. Uh, Augustine, living way back in the late 300s, the early 400s, he said this, He said, if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always, I will answer humility. Christians are to be those people who have come to see the glory of God. And the result is that they say, as John the Baptist did, he must increase and I must decrease. And so I just ask, before we even look at this passage Is that in your heart this morning? Is that your heartbeat? He must increase. I must decrease. If you approach a passage like this one full of yourself, uh, centered on your love for yourself, you will find nothing in this passage 
but an offense to your pride. But we are to be a people who live for ourselves no longer. We've taken our flesh and our pride and our glory and we've nailed them to the cross. And we have died to ourselves. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Take up his, his instrument of execution. And follow me. To be a Christian is to, is to take self and to put self on the cross and to leave it there and then to live the way Jesus did, which is for the glory of the Father. Have you ever been in conversation with folks and for whatever reason you had this desire to slip in a little tidbit about yourself that you knew would make you look good? You're having a conversation and you just, you, you can't help yourself. You just mention in passing some good deed you did or some accomplishment of yours. And, and as soon as you do it, if you're like me, you feel ashamed. <laughs> as soon as you say it, you think, why did I do that? Why am I so concerned with others thinking better of me? It is not our glory that we as Christians are to be living for. It is God's glory that matters. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And it is only with that heart desire that we can come to this passage and see it rightly and love it and cherish it as we should. So what is going on in this passage? Well, Paul has been explaining... That God in His sovereignty chooses or elects people to receive His promises and to receive His blessings. He gave us the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was chosen to receive God's blessings and Ishmael was not. He gave us the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob chosen to receive God's blessings. Esau was not. And with these two sets of brothers, they they shared the same father, but it wasn't the blood in their veins that made the difference. What determined whether each man was going to be in God's covenant or not? And Paul says, ultimately, it was God's sovereign choice. And so an objection was raised in verse 14. And the objection was, this is unjust. It is sinful, it is unrighteous, it is unjust for God to choose to save some and not to save others. And Paul deals with that objection by helping us see from Old Testament scriptures that this is exactly what it means to be God. God's very name means that he is one who has mercy on whom he has mercy and has compassion on whom he has compassion. And for the glory of his name, sometimes God chooses to show mercy to some. And sometimes God chooses to harden some, as he did with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Paul says that God is under obligation to no man. And just because he shows mercy to one does not mean that God is obligated to show mercy to all. Indeed, the moment we start talking as if God owes people mercy, it's no longer mercy. 
It's no longer grace if it is owed. And so we spent two sermons on verses 14 through 18, listening to Paul answer that objection. And now as we come to verses 19 through 23, we find another objection is being raised. So look at verse 19. See the objection, okay? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And you can see where this objection is coming from. I mean, take, take the example of Pharaoh. Paul just showed us that God raised up Pharaoh for his glory, the glory of God's name. And God hardened Pharaoh. Time and again, Pharaoh witnessed acts of God that would have driven any other man to the dust, face in the ground, repenting before God. And yet Pharaoh would not repent. God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then, as judgment for Pharaoh's stubbornness, God brought even more severe plagues upon Pharaoh, even the death of his own firstborn son. And the objection is, God, how can you hold Pharaoh accountable? And punish Pharaoh for sins when you chose for him to be that way. When you were the one hardening his heart. That's not the only example that Paul has in mind. The bigger example is that of the unbelieving Jews in his day. Remember, that's how this whole chapter started, right? That that was the issue, the issue of this chapter is that so many of Paul's fellow Jews have rejected Jesus Christ. And part of Paul's explanation for why so many of his own kin had rejected Jesus Christ was that they were not chosen. God has a plan. And God's plan was for the majority of Jews to reject their own Messiah. And Paul's going to say a lot about this. We're not done with that issue. Romans 11 is going to say a lot about this issue. But if God has chosen for the Jews to reject Jesus Christ, how can he then hold them accountable for that? How can he judge them for that? Well, just to make the objection as clear as I can, let's ask it this way. How can God punish any sinner in hell if it was God who predestined that person to never believe never repent and to live in sin to their dying day that's the objection why does he still find fault for who can resist his will now to help us with that question Paul gives us three answers and frankly you may not like them I'm just going to tell you up front, you, you may not like them. They are not the easiest answers to hear. But they are true answers. And they are good for us. Some medicine doesn't taste good, but you need it. And this is some of that kind of medicine. These are flesh-killing, God-exalting answers. And so let's look at his three answers one at a time. So the first answer is found in verse 20. 
Verse 20, do you see it? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So the first answer is, who are you to be asking this? It's aimed at much at our hearts as it is at our heads. It's meant as an attitude check. Paul is saying, let's be careful here. When we start questioning the ways of God, let us be very careful when we start thinking about charging God with doing wrong. And here's the question. Who knows more about what is wisest and best to do with clay? The clay or the potter who shapes the clay? We must never forget that we are the clay. And that our understanding and our wisdom and our judgment and our discernment is nothing compared to God's. Faith does the opposite of this. Faith says, even when I don't understand, I trust you. Faith says, when God does something and it seems wrong to me, I know it is my assessment that is faulty. And not my God. Isaiah 55 verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Mount Hermon. How much higher precisely. Are the heavens than the earth. Try to put a number to that. Exactly how much higher. Are the heavens from the earth. Or to ask it differently. How far does outer space go. Where, where is the outer limit of the universe? This is how much higher God's understanding is than ours. Remember what Martin Luther said to Erasmus? He said, your thoughts of God are too human. Too human. This is a warning. This first answer is a warning. Be wary of thinking that you, the clay, know more than the potter. And you know what? Paul could have stopped there. He could have ended his answer with that rebuke. He would have been right to do so. But God graciously chose to work through this apostle to give us two more answers. So first he speaks to our attitude, helps us get it in check. And then he lays out two more arguments to help us. So let's look at the second answer. It comes in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay... To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So so the first answer to our question of why God still finds fault was, who are you? Who are you to answer back to God? But our second answer found here in verse 21 is that God has creator rights. Paul's appeal here in verse 21 is to the rights of the potter. And what does Paul mean by this? Well, at least two things. One, a potter has the right to make from his clay whatever he pleases. And second, if a potter chooses to use a portion of his clay to make a decorative bowl that he will display as a work of beauty and art... 
And then he takes a second portion of that same lump and makes a plate for him to eat his eggs on. The potter has done nothing wrong. He is not obligated to use all the clay in exactly the same way. This is true of young potters. Picture a five-year-old playing with his Play-Doh. He takes some of the Play-Doh out of the container and he starts shaping it. He creates a a long neck and a head and a a body and four legs and he holds it up for you to see and it's it's a dinosaur. He's created a a dinosaur. It's a five-year-old's Play-Doh dinosaur. Then he sets that dinosaur down and he reaches back into the container for a little more Play-Doh. And this time he giggles as he rolls up a little Play-Doh ball and sets it on the table just behind the dinosaur. And what's that, you ask? And with a big five-year-old grin, he says, that's the dinosaur's poop. Because that's what five-year-olds do with Play-Doh, right? Has the boy done something wrong? Was it unfair to the second batch of Play-Doh that the first batch got to be a dinosaur and the second batch was the dinosaur's poop? Of course not. The potter has the right to make what he wants from each lump of clay. And by the way, this is just as much true of the professional potter as it is of the five-year-old and his Play-Doh. But wait a minute, Justin. Clay is clay. Play-Doh is Play-Doh. We are human beings. We, we have souls. We have minds. We have hearts. We have feelings. We have wills. We have value. We have dignity. Surely we are more than clay. And I simply ask you, are we? Are we? Man was made from the dust of the ground. Yes, we have souls, but these souls exist only because God chose to breathe into us. There is nothing that we are that God didn't give to us and make us to be. In fact, if we're honest, at the end of the day, everything in creation comes from the same source material. Nothing. God's clay is nothing. So let that boggle around in your mind for a little while. Everything comes from the mind of God. From nothing, he made some things to be stars. From nothing, he made some things to be planets, some things to be rhinoceroses, some things to be pineapples, some things to be microscopic bacteria. He made mayflies, which have a less than 24-hour lifespan. And he made angels and human beings who will exist for all eternity to come. And Paul tells us here that he made some vessels to be vessels of honor. People that he will exalt, people that he will lift up. And he made others as vessels of dishonor. People that he will bring down, bring low. It's all his. And his rights over his creation trump every other right in the universe. My right to live... Trumps your right to drive 120 miles per hour down the road. And so we have speed limits. Your right to speak freely trumps my right to not be offended. So you have freedom of speech. See, certain rights trump other rights. 
But this is the supreme right. This is the right that trumps all others. It is the right of God to do as He pleases with His world. And with His creation. And that leads us to Paul's third answer. We find it in verses 22 and and 23. He's, He's helped us to see that God has the right to do as He pleases. And now Paul gives us a glimpse of exactly what it is that God is pleasing to do. So answer one, who are you? Answer two, the rights of the potter. And now answer three, a holy purpose. God has a holy purpose for what He is doing. Let's read it, beginning in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. In the Greek, verse 22 begins with the words, but if. Okay, But if. What Paul begins in verse 22 is an if-then statement. right? A conditional statement. If I get a ticket, then I will be able to go to the show. If I do stop by the store, I will pick up some bananas, right? If, then. If this happens, then this will happen. However, Paul never finishes the sentence. He begins the if part of the sentence in the Greek, but he never gives the then part of the sentence. Uh, For the grammar nerds among us, and I know we have some grammar nerds in the room, Paul gives the protasis, but he leaves off the apodosis. Smart way to say he gives the if but doesn't give the then. Instead, it appears that Paul is assuming that we already know the second part of the sentence. And he assumes it because it's what he's been saying in the previous verses. Paul is saying if God is doing all of this for a holy purpose, then what protest can you bring? Then what will you say about it? In other words, Paul's assumption is that the holy purpose that he suggests in verses 22 and 23 should be enough to shut our mouths with all of our objections. This holy purpose should put an end to our protests and it should bring a beginning to our praises. There is a time to speak and there is a time to fall on your face and worship. And Paul here gives us a reason to be in awe of the sovereign God. To tremble before him and to worship. So what do we see? What do we see in these two verses about the holy purpose for why God is doing this? Well, first we see that God's purpose in choosing some to be his, some to be saved, and and others to be damned, is this. He wants to show something. He wants to display something. Something, right? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory? So God is doing everything that he's doing to make something known, to show something. God is putting something on display. What is God putting on display? He is putting on display himself, his own attributes. 
His own characteristics. Verse 22, He is showing His wrath. Second part of verse 22, He is making known His power. Verse 23, He is making known the riches of His glory. And who is the audience that He's putting these things on display for? Who is He showing them to? Well, according to verse 23, it is His vessels of mercy. Every vessel, every pot of the potter, every human being has been prepared by God for something. In verse 22, we read of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And we know from Scripture that this does not mean annihilation. It doesn't mean that these vessels of wrath get destroyed and then cease to exist. No, this is everlasting destruction. There are vessels of wrath that have been prepared for everlasting destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What a fearful thought. We are told that God endures with much patience these vessels of wrath. He doesn't cast them into hell the moment they are born in sin or the moment they commit their first sin. Rather, He continues to let these people live in this world. He keeps their hearts beating. He keeps their lungs pumping. Many unbelievers get to experience marriage and childbirth and the joy of a family and the the good feeling of a job well done and the thrill of sports and a beautiful day out by the sea. And because they have sinned against an infinitely good and holy God, they don't deserve any of that. But God is enduring with them. He is patient with them. He is holding back His wrath. And every moment they live is a moment that that they could repent, that they could turn, they could believe, they could be saved. God's glory is displayed in creation all around them. The truth of His presence and His law is written deep within their hearts. Some of them, we hear the gospel thousands of times. And yet these vessels of wrath, they will not repent and they will not believe and they will not be saved. And yes, God ordained it to be this way. But also, they don't want to. They don't want to. In other words, it isn't that they really, really, really want to believe on Christ and they really, really want to go to heaven, but God won't let them because they're vessels of wrath. No. They don't want to believe and they don't want God. They are making their decisions freely, the way we all do, from what is in their hearts. And though they continue to spit in the face of God by disregarding Him, though He gives them all that they are and all that they have, He endures patiently with them for a season. Why? So that when the day of judgment does come, it will be clear to all just how great is the iniquity and the guilt of the human race. When God cast these vessels of wrath into hell, No one will dare raise an objection. But they will know from their heads to their toes that God is just and right to pour out his wrath 
upon them. A potter doesn't make a pot only to destroy it. That, that makes no sense. God isn't going to annihilate these people. He's not going to cause them to cease to exist. Rather, they will stand forever as objects of his wrath, serving a holy purpose, displaying the justice of God. They will show the righteousness of God, the guilt of man, the wrath we all deserve. And then there are the vessels of mercy. And let's be clear about this. These are vessels of mercy. These are people snatched from the fire by the grace of God. The vessels of mercy cannot look upon the vessels of wrath and say, Ha! We were so much smarter, holier, wiser. No. If you are a Christian, there was nothing, absolutely nothing in you that made you more deserving of the favor of God. We all come from the same lump of clay. The same lump. Every one of us deserves the same hell that so many of our fellow human beings are headed towards. But God has not prepared these vessels for hell. We're told in this passage that God has prepared his vessels of mercy for glory. Do you see that in the passage? Do you see it? It's the most astounding thing. We deserve eternal judgment. We deserve to be under the righteous wrath of God. We deserve to be vessels of dishonor. And instead, we're being prepared for glory. Glory. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that God is going to make us glorious. That one day we will be a holy people with glorified bodies and glorified souls. It means, secondly, that God is taking these vessels of mercy to a place called glory, where we will live in a perfected new heavens and a new earth, where there will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, and no sin either. But third and mainly, it means we will be brought into the very presence of God Himself and into the experience of His love like we have never known before. Being prepared for glory is being prepared to see God in the person of the glorified Jesus Christ. And we will adore Him and we will love Him and we will bask in His goodness and His greatness with joy immeasurable forever. And the only way that God is just and right to bring these sinners to glory is through the cross. Jesus took the hell that the vessels of mercy deserved in their place. He bore the punishment for them. And this is why all praise for our salvation must go to Christ alone. Without Christ and without the cross, there would be no vessels of mercy. There would only be vessels of wrath. Now here's a question that sometimes gets asked. Will people in heaven know about hell? And people they knew who are in hell. When we are in heaven, will we know about 
people that we loved and cared about who are suffering in hell. And, and if we do know, how can heaven be heaven? How can heaven be joyful? How can we be forever happy knowing about the suffering of people in hell? Have you ever asked that question? Do people in heaven know about hell? Well, this passage seems to indicate that we will, in fact, be very well aware of hell when we are in heaven. That hell will not be hidden from our knowledge. Indeed, we're told in this passage that one purpose of hell is for us to see God's glory displayed there. That the vessels of mercy will have made known to them the glory of God's wrath as it is put on display towards the vessels of wrath. Indeed, we're told in other passages that when Christ returns, his people will even help and participate in bringing judgment on the unbelieving. So we'll know. How then can we be happy in heaven if we are aware of such things? I want to give you G.I. Packer's answer. By the way, G.I. Packer is getting ready to turn 90 years old, and I saw this week that he is uh, going mostly blind, and so he's had to bring an end to his writing and his speaking. And uh, I, I doubt there are a few men in the 20th century and early 21st century who uh, wrote and spoke more things that had a great impact for the gospel as G.I. Packer. So pray for him as, as you, if you think about him. But here is his answer to how we could be happy in heaven if we know about hell. He says, in heaven, we will see with a new and far better perspective. We will fully concur with God's judgment on the wicked. The martyrs in heaven call on God to judge evil people on earth. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When God brings judgment on the wicked city of Babylon, the people in heaven are told, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Revelation 18.20 Hell itself may provide a dark backdrop to God's shining glory and unfathomable grace. Jonathan Edwards made this case saying, When the saints in glory, therefore, shall see the doleful state of the damned, how this will heighten their sense of the blessedness of their own estate, so exceedingly different from it. Edwards added, They shall see the dreadful miseries of the damned and consider that they deserved the same misery and that it was sovereign grace and nothing else which made them so much to differ. End quote. Isn't this at least part of what Paul means when he says that God is doing what he is doing with the vessels of wrath in order that the vessels of mercy will know the riches of his glory? In heaven, we will know and we will remember what we deserve. And in heaven, we will live in eternal gratitude and with eternal praise and with eternal humility before the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who ransomed us by His blood. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? 
we took it out of the hymnal and they changed the last part because they thought it was too offensive. So we sang it for sinners such as I. But that's not what Wesley wrote. Wesley wrote for such a worm. Is it Wesley or Watts? doesn't matter. Such a worm as I. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. And then we, don't, we didn't sing this first, but it's a good one. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. We will live in all eternity with gratitude, deep gratitude in our hearts. The whole scheme of redemption is that God might show how great His grace and mercy is given to us in Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. So remember how we began this morning? This passage will only be acceptable to you if you see that God's glory is more important than man's. Can you say this morning, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Unbeliever in this room, you do not yet know whether you are a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. But you can know. By faith in Jesus Christ, you can become a child of God and you can know that you are His forever and ever. Let me encourage you, let me plead with you to cast your own glory and your own living for self and living your own life, your own way. Put all of that in the dust. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow Him. And you will be able to have assurance that you are a vessel of mercy. And believers in this room, what is the takeaway from this passage? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray.